Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I've picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. And we are back with another episode of Nobody Told Me That. And I am super honored to have uh, people who know what they're talking about on the show. I'm just kidding. I usually have people who know what they're talking about. But in this <laughs> case, it's for real. So from the California Dental Association, I have Lisa Greer, who is their dental benefits analyst. Hello, Lisa. Good morning or afternoon, wherever you're at. And then I have Matt Nelson, who is the practice management analyst. How are you doing, Matt? Good, good. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. What's really funny, listeners, is we always do this like pregame and we I always get like a list of what they want to talk about and what I want to ask. And I was looking at our list and I thought this could be an easily a three-parter, three-hour, four-hour type podcast because this is right up the alley for, for you listeners. So Lisa and Matt, welcome to the podcast, which is full, which is listened to by people who love insurance. Well, love, hate insurance <laughs> and love practice management. So I, I think you're going to be so valuable for today. What are you all seeing in uh, the great state of California, the big state of California? What are you all seeing out there? What's happening? There's a lot. We have a couple of bills in the legislature going on right now um, for self-funded. I know we kind of talked about that a little bit for for dental plans to to disclose at eligibility whether a plan is regulated statewide or if it's federally regulated. I think that's important for for dentists to know statewide because because the laws that apply to those particular types of policies differ depending on on if it's if it's state or federally funded. But yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of questions coming in from self funded regarding those issues right now. Matt, you seeing anything crazy that's blowing up your phone lines? A lot of people that have been, you know, in contracts with plans for a long time that are now wanting to question, like, does this plan fit for me? Are there other plans that fit for me? And just a, a lot of calls on people like negotiating contract status or evaluating contract status, really, and seeing, you know, if what was working when they signed up is still working for them today. A lot of emotional calls. There's a lot of emotion behind it. Is it emotion that they're angry at? The, the contracts that they're in, or is it a motion that they realize they're losing money? Yes. It's yes to all of those questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Because that is the, the sentiment out there. It's like, how did I get myself into this situation? And how do I get myself out? And it feels like, you know, the more they try to extricate themselves from, from the situation, it feels stickier. Like they feel like they're getting drawn back in. Yes. Um, yeah. So that is what you're hearing as well from your constituents. And how do you warn them that that emotion is not how to make the decision like do you how do you talk them off the cliff yeah you know that's a good question you know we do have like some good resources available you know there's so many years of experience within our team and we have a couple cool um, resources that we've made to help guide members on like evaluating things to look at like what are your demographics what are your patient base what's the percentage of the plan that comes from that um you know are you in a small one employer town like you know, one of the examples I like to share is when, um, where, where I grew up, it was one big employer group 
and there was two dental offices in the town and one office took the plan and it was a you know working class community blue collar community and we are a family of five it was all big families there and so one took the plan and had really good google and yelp reviews and one didn't take the plan and they had worse google and yelp reviews oh wow and so you know it's really like let's evaluate your demographics like what's your community what's your patient base um you know can they do this can they not do this um what are the you know the employer groups that there's just so much to look at it's not just the fees and i think that's what we really try to emphasize is that yes the fees are a very important part of it and yes fees and money are tied to emotions very heavily and we understand that but there's so much more to the contract to look at than just that part of it. And I think it's it's just like what they have to do with their patients and educating them on treatment and, and their dental health. It's, we spend a lot of time educating them on don't make the emotional decision. Look at all the things that Matt pointed out when it comes to, you know, demographics and, and all of that that comes along with it. So it's it's the education part of it versus the emotional part of it. I know there was one example uh, in my last newsletter. I sent out a warning because... The emotion got into it. This one dentist uh, sent out the letter. Yes. Yeah, yes. sent out the letter and then received a cease and desist from an insurance company because he had made, uh, the insurance company said, unprovable claims, which, you know, it, it's there's things that you know in the office and then there's things you can prove. And okay. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, they yeah. had the office dead to rights and they had to, you know, issue a, an apology and a retraction and all of that. But that is a great example of a emotional, you know, yeah, response yeah. instead of stopping and, and thinking through it. Lisa, I want to go back to something you said, because the, the legislature uh, concerning self-funded plans, mm-hmm. the self-funded plans, most of our listeners know this, but just in case, if it's a self-funded plan, the state law does not apply. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So California is pretty active at, at passing laws to protect dentists and and the consumers, the patients as well. And so any of those self-funded plans don't that we pass here don't apply to those self-funded policies. So non-covered services is where this comes up most of the time. Yeah. And I just see this is online. It's like one of the most asked questions. And you ask it in three different dental groups and you get 20 different responses. So yeah. Um, so what what do you say? I'm sure this is a question. Do you probably have this templated out? Do you have a recording of yourself answering this? <laughs> I, I I have Matt. Every time Matt and I do a presentation, I have like three or four slides that I that I go over and I talk about the non-covered services law. But I'm sure, as you're aware, there's 45 states, including California, have non-covered services laws. Um, our legislation began in 2010, but our particular law states that the plans can't hold uh, a provider to a contracted rate for a non-covered service. But then our law defines what is considered non-covered services. So it doesn't apply with when a patient is maxed out, when they have a waiting period, if they have a frequency issue, or the one that really gets them every time is the alternative benefit. So it's not necessarily a non-covered service. I try to explain to members that it's a non-paid service. So where we hear this, not as much recently, but definitely the five years prior is with implants. Implants might not be a covered service of the plan or the policy, but the replacement of the tooth somehow is. And so the, the plan is able to hold the provider, the, the dentist to their contracted rate, and then they'll pay at the alternative benefit. So um, yeah, we, yeah. we explain that a lot. So that's basically my my recording is I always go with the implant is not a covered service. <laughs> so the 6010, the implant code, just to be clear, clear here, because some yeah. people are probably listening and they're like, wait, I need to hear that again. 
So the 6010 is considered a non-covered service because they don't pay for implants. But if they downgrade it or give the alternate benefit payment of a partial denture, partial or a bridge, depending on how policy is written exactly. So the fee for the partial denture is what they will base the benefits on. Is the office allowed to charge up to the implant fee? The contracted rate for the implant fee, yes. So the patient will pay the difference between the two. So it's like a a prorated benefit mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. It is confusing for, for especially new people coming in. Like you think if it says non-covered, if there's a alternate benefit that applies somehow, then that triggers it to actually trigger the fee schedule. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then that is confusing and it's hard to explain. And so I'm, I hope if you were listening to this, this sort of made sense to you. If not, rewind and uh, <laughs> listen to it again. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of cosmetic services and do you get calls about that, like how do we bill for cosmetics and how to, maybe not cosmetics, but like material upgrade and sure. things like yeah. that. What what kind of questions do you get around that? We get a lot of questions regarding the branded crowns. I know, I'm sure you know what we're talking about, but but ADA actually does, I, I refer back to ADA in, in the ADA CDT code book. It states that it's not necessarily the, the means by which the crown is done. It's still just a crown. So yeah. we're able to refer them back to that quite often. And so that, that helps that helps take a little bit of the the anger, <laughs> a little bit of the fuel off of the fire with it. Yeah. So what about the, there's federal legislation that might be coming to make non-covered service law a federal um, law, which would then apply to all of the plans. Is that correct? Yeah, it would, it would apply to all the plans, but I'm sure with any other type of law, it would be the stricter of the two. So we'll see, hopefully, again, with those, those, state plans that that we are that are regulated here in California will have our our non-covered services and then the federal level will have that one as well so that'll be nice it will be nice i cuz it, it right now you have to do this kind of decision tree it's like a flow chart like is this plan self-funded fully funded and i think it's you, what you were saying is they have to identify it which is fantastic yeah. cuz that's yeah. one of the questions i get in class was how am i supposed to know and you know, it, it's bad enough we're supposed to be, you know, Nostradamus when we're dealing with all these yeah. plan designs, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Matt, then does this transfer into billing issues for you? Are you hearing complaints about, you mentioned reviews, but is that something that comes up, billing surprises and then reviews that come from that? Billing surprises, I think, I think more it's like recoupment that's more than a year old or something that comes up later. And they're like, wait, I thought there was, I thought it was a one year law, like our state law. But no, with with billing, when I get calls about billing, it's usually guiding the member on taking care of the patient. Um, And, you know, reviews are something that we talk about because you don't, you know, there's things that you can have as like a review online that you can overcome. Like if you are an expensive office or you're a busy office, you know, those are things that people will give you a shot at. But things like, um, you know, maybe inappropriate billing or inaccurate billing, those are things that people are going to read and like, nope, don't want to deal with that, not go into that office. And that is definitely an issue when you're not super transparent with how you're going to bill the patient. Um, So recruitment, you said a good R word there. Can you talk a little bit about the, the recruitment issues that you are hearing? Well, this is Lisa's wheelhouse here. <laughs> well, I'm going to take an answer from either of you. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what the recruitment is coming from. If it's if it's audit based, which um, Matt knows this that that when it's dental plan audits, that's one of my favorite things to work with members on because I get to work with them from you know th- about three to six months from start to finish of it. But if it's a a recruitment from a, a plan audit or if it's a retroactive eligibility, like Matt said, we have a 365 day law here in California. They're only able to 
go back 365 days, but then, you know, not to beat the dead horse, the self-funded policies, those have a, a little bit, you know, more lenient time frame when it comes to things like that. So I always try to explain to dentists that when you when you receive that recoupment request, do not ignore it uh-huh. because an ignored request basically is an admission and they're going to get their money back one way or another. So is that for offices that are in network or does that even apply to out of network as well? Really good question. So yeah, if it's good question. Yeah, good question. Yeah. So we always we always explain to our members if if you are out of network with a plan and you receive a recruitment or or an audit, uh, a request to do a chart audit, you can politely decline because you're not contractually obligated for that. So mm-hmm. um, we, we do recommend that they politely decline and then we kind of explain to them the difference between a prepayment audit and a postpayment audit, which the chart audits would be a postpayment audit. So I shouldn't send it back with ha 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 written on it. No, okay. no, no, no. Good luck. Try again next time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So now I have a professional advice on that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a lot of DSOs that call you or is it mostly small offices? Like what part of the dentists in California that are reaching out to you the most? I'll let Matt take that. He he speaks more on, on that. Yeah. We don't really differentiate ourselves, like, I guess, DSO or private. Like, we really just want to support all dentists in in California. And that, you know, that's our goal. So we do have, um, you know, a lot of associate doctors that do go into to DSOs and call and have questions. So although, you know, we talked about the four pillars of area that we cover, dental benefits, practice management, employment, and regulatory compliance. You know, most, like, larger DSOs do have people in those roles that can answer those questions for them there. So... Uh, probably a little bit less calls um, from from there in general. Um, although our associates, uh, we do have a really heavy focus on early career dentists and associates. You know, I guess trying to trying to figure out how we can support them more as they're beginning their career. I think right now, probably the majority of our calls are still from private practice owners. Yeah. We need a lot of help or associates in in private practice. Yeah, or yeah. You mentioned um, contracts, and I know that that's. I'm so glad that there's resources for dentists, um, not just employment contracts, but associate contracts, insurance contracts. Um, you know, they didn't go to dental school to learn how to read a contract. And it's, you know, I, I've read a gazillion insurance contracts and even I have to sometimes circle back and go, what was that again? So I can't imagine, yeah, yeah. you know, having to read this and, and do it without help. Is there one type of contract that you get the most requests to review or is it pretty just popular all over just to get contract help or to give contract help to your uh, constituents? We get quite a few calls from dentists that want us to review dental plan contracts. I think that's probably the number one contract that we're we're asked to review. We occasionally get employment contract requests and and we don't have the ability to do that. But in in conjunction with ADA, we are able to send in dental plan contracts into the ADA contract analysis service, and they will they will send us back their analysis. It's not just like Matt says; it's it's not a specific for your office type of a, an evaluation, but they evaluate the contract as a whole and point out a few things that you might want to look at or take a little bit longer to kind of digest and get a, potentially a second opinion on. This is something for CDA members, but do other states have a similar arrangement with the ADA? I'm not sure if they have the arrangement with the ADA, but they can send the contract into the ADA themselves. Too. Yeah. I think ADA has a, it's, what is it, like $25? I think it's 50 per contract if you send it directly yeah. to the ADA. That's yeah. dirt cheap. That's like taking yeah. your team to yes. lunch, like not even, like that's dirt cheap. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that's a good resource for them to be able to have you evaluate the contract. Okay. Is there one specific clause that pops out that you hear like 
from people that are going, <laughs> wait, what? What is this? What, what, Matt's nodding his head. He can't wait for me to stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the uh, network leasing. Yeah. You know, that there's um, ADA does a really good job of identifying that language. And, and Lisa just taught a course on putting that language in the course and trying to have members like identify where what that language meant and so it was uh, a really good training training experience but um yeah that's definitely one of the red flags we point out where you want to get more information on you know how many plans you're going to be contracted with or you know which which group this is and what that means for for you of course it's going to be weighted more towards the carrier because it's the carrier's contract but what what can you do to mitigate being leased out to a hundred different networks. CA sponsored legislation in 2019 to put some kind of guide rails on on leased uh, networks in the state and and it requires transparency and so the plans have to disclose what affiliates that they're working with or or who they are going to be potentially leasing them out to. Um, I typically recommend to to dentists to review those affiliates at least yearly. I always recommend at the first of the year there's a lot of things you have to do at the first of the year. You're looking at your fee schedules, you're looking at new CDT codes and all of those. Look at those those lease networks. And then they do have the ability to opt out of participating in a lease network. But they have to they have to exercise that. And how yeah, how long does it notice. take yeah. to, to put that into place? Thirty days typically is what the yeah, is, is what it takes to, to put it into place. I think during the the lockdowns, uh what in what angered a lot of people was that they were in either in the middle of being taken off of networks or, you know, in uh-huh. the middle of signing up and everything, you know, because everybody stopped working. And that's when yeah. all these dentists are realizing, oh, wait, what am I signing up for? And finally, they took their foot off the gas and started reading contracts. Yeah. Were you guys working too during the lockdown? Were you still fielding calls? And Oh, for sure. Yeah. Not just COVID talk, because I'm sure that's what yeah. they were all calling about, but even plan benefit talk. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the calls that I received, believe it or not, were from dentists that had furloughed the majority of their staff and their team and have really just looked at their AR and their dental billing for the first time in many, many years. And so I received a lot of calls from from dentists that had no idea about inclusions in contracts and downgrades and all of those those things that affect their their payments. And so yeah. I received a lot of calls during that period of time where where dentists just allowed someone else to do it and and didn't take the time to really understand dental billing, you know, in general and then even how their systems work. I had members that were calling me saying, like, I have this practice management software. I don't know how to process electronic claims. Oh. And I was like, Well, I don't know either. <laughs> you need to contract your practice management software company. So <laughs> I know everybody thinks it's a, an easy button, right? It's not just an easy yeah. button. Yes. <laughs> Matt, did you get a lot of uh, panic calls, non COVID panic calls? <laughs> well, I think it, it was interesting because a lot of people, like, like Lisa said, a lot of dentists started opening the mail. And, you know, billing takes. I mean, Lisa and I joke, like, because we both were office managers at one point, and 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 billing and understanding the front office operations takes, uh, what what do you say, Lisa, eighteen to twenty four months? Yeah, anybody that I was training, I would say it's it's just twelve to eighteen months. Don't worry about it. But in reality, it's eighteen to twenty four months. But I didn't want to scare them off. Yeah. But yeah, in reality, to really get a firm grasp on on dental billing and and to be completely confident and trained up, I always say it's eighteen to twenty four months. Yeah. Well, and I know that there's people listening for sure, and I they're in my classes too. I'm sure they're in your classes where they're like, I just took over. I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's always just dentists handing over millions of dollars to somebody who is unproven is just mind-boggling. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think that's starting to uh, hopefully fade away. I think dentists are definitely understanding now that we need a little bit of biz knowledge um, going in there. The one, the the worst call I got during the lockdowns was a doctor who uh, was doing the same thing, opening up the mail. And uh, he went to, um, he billed for a buildup. And somebody complained, you know what, you've never billed me for this before. And he went back and he looked and for like the last three years, all his buildups had been written off when they weren't paid. And he was uh, just beside himself. And I, I get it. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of dental bill training that time. And then a lot of um, like a lot of little embezzlement stuff popped up. And so like interesting questions there. And I think we saw even from surveys where we saw like. ADA did a survey in 2018 that was like 48% of dentists had to experience embezzlement. And now like dentistry IQ is saying it's like 60%. So like unearthed a lot of things in that time and a lot of training for, for better or for worse. Well, and if you add in time embezzlement, then it's probably closer to 99.9%. Right. So you were both former office managers. Um, tell me a little bit about that. And how, how the heck did you end up at CDA? I actually was brought in. My my best friend works for CDA. So as soon as a, a spot opened up in, in practice support, she brought me over quite willingly. But I, I started in dental over 20 years ago at a small private practice orthodontist office, um, just doing his his billing. And that's where like my first step into into dental and, and contracts and understanding all of that. And from there, I went to a, a multi-location, multi-provider, multi-specialty practice managing. And, and it was it was quite a task. It was quite a task. Oh, you had your uh, roller skates on for that, I'm sure. Yeah. And the best part about, I think, from working in, in that area is that I was able to help a number of dentists. So I was able to help a number of dentists in, in my offices. And then to be able to go from that to helping 27,000 dentists throughout the state of California, to me, was just, I was like, that's perfect. That's that's my gig. Nice. My gig. Nice. Matt, what about you? Well, you know, my background before dental was in in retail leadership, like store manager position for Walmart and and and, and internal theft investigator for for Target. But when I made the shift into dental, I got thrown into a three point three million dollar practice. You know, it's just a massive group practice, and uh, by the end of six years, we hit or five years, we hit six million dollars there. But working also closely with Lisa and um, during the pandemic, shifted into consulting, pri- uh, private consulting. After that, um, Lisa had messaged me and said, hey, there's a spot open. Why don't you send over your send over your resume? And uh, well, here I am. And it's good to work with people that you know and that you trust and they do a yeah. good job. So I'm, I'm glad. Absolutely. I'm glad. So you guys are handling a lot of new grads. How many demo schools do you guys have in California? Like three, two? Seven. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you yeah. do get a lot. Do you have like just one new grad person or do you all handle the calls from the new grads <laughs> yeah well we get a lot of calls from new grads we do have a like awesome student liaison um medlins like in the seven colleges all the time like building those relationships and then uh katie is our she is our director of early career dentists so we have two people really focused on being in the schools and focused on early career dentists and then the rest of us like on our team are supporting all the calls that are getting, you know, directed to us. Are the new grads landing jobs right away? I mean, I'm hearing from dentists that they're having a hard time finding associates. That's all. I mean, I know it's always been an issue to find the right associate, but even just finding associates now seems to be an issue. Are you seeing that in your state or is it 
Are, are you you all doing okay because you have so many associates coming out? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of dentists available. I think a lot of the times um, when someone's having a hard time finding an associate, we just have conversations about, you know, where to go or what are you looking for? Or, you know, being involved with the dental school that you graduated from is usually really good. I mean, there's one school here that does, uh, I was laughing, it's, it's UOP does a, um, like a speed dating thing where they have the students come in <laughs> and then uh, they have UOP grads that may be looking for um, associates and they come in and they spend like five to 10 minutes talking about everything you know about each other. And if it works, then go off and talk more. And if it doesn't work, then just keep circling. But it's <laughs> really good networking exercise and, and helps them get where they want to be. That's great. With the new grads, when they call you or talk to you, what what is their big pain point? What's their big concern? For, for me, a lot of it's just wanting to understand their contract and what their work environment's going to look like and what their role as a leader of the practice is going to be going into the practice. And I know uh, I was just listening to one of your podcasts a couple of days ago that you touched on that quite a bit. And it was a really great, really great podcast. But I know Lisa gets a lot about insurance contracting and I'll let you talk more about yours. The calls that I receive from, from new grads are typically once they're in the practice and it's a little bit of a reality check for them when they start to see what plans are actually paying on and and the inclusive procedures and, and things like that. But I think just the difficulties with contracting for new grads is a little tough for them. I always recommend like from the start, get copies of all of your important information together and have it in one place. So your DEA and your license and your diploma and your liability and have that together and ready to go because you're going to need that. And even when Matt and I were in offices and we were contracting new associates, it was every day we were having to ask, like, did you bring a copy of your diploma for me today? Did you bring a copy of your... So it's like, I, I always tell them, like, have all of that information together and ready to go because they're they're definitely going to need that when it comes to contracting. And they're, they're a little apprehensive and scared about contracting with the plans. And that's where we're able to encourage them you know, let's send it into ADA and have it analyzed. And that way you can take a look at it and, and see, you know, if this is potentially something that's a, a deal breaker for them. Say they go straight into a DSO environment. Are they basically given any leeway in signing the contract? Are they able to pick and choose which ones they take? I mean, or are they basically, once you sign up, this is what we as a DSO offer? What do you see happening in that market? I think it's not only just the DSOs, but but as a, at a private practice, you're going to want your associate dentist to contract with the same plans that you're contracted with as well. Matt and I talk about this during our presentations is if you have one dentist that's contracted with plans and then another dentist that's either not contracted or contracted with different plans, it's really difficult for your front office team to schedule and and coordinate benefits and, and all of those. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily DSO specific. I think it's just industry specific that if you're you're hiring an associate, even as a private practice, you're going to want them to contract with the same plans that you have. So again, could it be a, a make or break situation where you're this is potentially you're you're going to be employed or not going to be employed based off of whether you want to sign this contract or not? That's a decision that they have to, to make on their own. I guess the alternative is to open up your own practice, but not everybody has the stomach for that. It's a lot yeah. of work. Or just the the business knowledge to be able to open their their own practice straight out of out of school. So yeah, it's wild though because like I grew up with dentists. My boss of over you know I think we're at twenty four twenty five something years. I still do some work for him on the side. You know they just came straight out and they were running a practice and same with all of his colleagues. And now you know it's like he's he, I know he looks at it and he's like I'm so tired. <laughs> he just doesn't want to deal with regulations and laws and taxes and all that. I can't imagine. 
Matt, they're probably blowing your phone up if they decide to go that yeah, route. Yeah, we have some really good resources in getting started and opening a practice and everything. I, I think what's, you know, happening now, too, is that the cost of going to school is significantly higher. So coming out with that big loan and then looking at the, the loan of what a practice is going to cost is, you know, it's off-putting for some people. It's it's scary, I, and I get it. You know, it's some, yeah. the best advice that I've received from bankers and from lenders is that when people get out of school, they want to hurry up and pay off their student loans as quickly as possible. But really, it's more about saving money to prove to the lender that you can save money and having money put away. They'll work with you with your student loans. It's it's showing that you can save and put aside some money that's important. So cash flow management, savings management is what they're looking for. And that could potentially get them larger loans to expand and grow the practice. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Lisa, I know that you you talked to them about their contracts. What's like one big piece of advice for a new grad that you would like to, as far as contracts go, like what, what is it that you're telling them? Definitely reviewing their contract and, and keeping a really good eye on that. One thing that we see a lot of dentists in general are, and new dentists and associate dentists that are moving from practice to practice don't look at portability clauses in contracts. So that that can affect them. Um, we, we've spoken to members before in the past that was they one was working part time at one practice that they were in network with every plan and then wanted to work at a fee for service practice and found out the hard way when EOB started to come back with a, a discount on it is that they were in a portable contract that was applied at all locations. So um, just definitely that keeping an eye on on some of those little clauses in the contracts and also to having some dental billing knowledge, just a basic grasp of it. We're not expecting them to have that. 18 to 24 months, like we'll mm -hmm. take care of that. But like having a general grasp of dental billing and, and the contracts in general. That's what keeps me busy for sure. So, <laughs> uh, and it changes a lot. I mean, I, unfortunately I hear from dentists all the time. Well, I'm, I wish I had gotten my, you know, front office person or my insurance coordinator to come take this course. Like the dentist is coming and taking the course. And the reason yeah. that was given is, well, I took a course a long time ago. I know what I'm doing. And it's a fatality, honestly, because I have to stay up on it, right? Like I, I teach this stuff yeah. and I am changing my slides all the time. You all teach this stuff. Like there's no one static slide set that I can use, you know, from month to month. It changes all the time. New plans, new new legislation, just keeping track of the legislation yeah. is enough. So I, I can't imagine taking one class three years ago and thinking that they know it all. It's a, a little bit crazy in my mind, but, you know, what do I know? What do we know? I just did a presentation for one of our components where the title of the presentation was Ask an Expert. And I, I told him I struggle with that term expert because to me, expert is I know everything and I by far do not know everything. There's always something that's changing and 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 new things, just like you had said. And so I, I try to tell him I'm, I'm more like the old farmer's slogan where it's I, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. So it's <laughs> You know, when you're working in a practice, you're like, oh, I've seen that before. I know what to do. So, yeah. Well, in parentheses, you know, asking an expert at this moment is what you should Yes. Because oh. that's really, because I, I find myself answering, well, as of today, <laughs> you know. Yes. And, and this might be different tomorrow, but as of today. And boy, wasn't that the case with COVID with, with it was almost a, this is, this is the regulation right now. <laughs> and then yeah. like the second you hang up, oh, oops, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. changed. So yeah, yeah it, it's a yeah, fast definitely. moving um, industry and it never used to really be like that. So I can understand where somebody thinks, you know, well, if I just take a class every couple of years, but it, it's just not that way anymore. And I'm glad that you guys are, are there for them with that. And there was one 
sort of crazy thing that popped up, and I don't, I think we can handle it from here on out, but are you still hearing about um, situations such that the the new associate signs on at a, at a lower fee schedule for, say, you know, one of the Acme insurance, okay, signs on for a low fee schedule, and the owner doctor is purposely not on that fee schedule. They're on a higher tier, and they have a better fee schedule. The new associate uh-huh. comes on, and all of a sudden, the lower fee schedule now is attached to everybody in the office. Is that something that they can protect themselves against or is that just still happening out there? I'm not seeing that necessarily. The contracts are, are more individual specific to specific other than office location. But but we are seeing that definitely for sure is that the, the owner of the practice might have a higher fee schedule and then any associates that are coming in are going to have a lower fee schedule. And it makes it, again, back to your front office team, it makes it tough for them for coordinating benefits. Mm-hmm. It makes it, it tough for scheduling and 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 things like that so we're not seeing it as a practice as a whole it's it's more associate to you know individual to individual it is tough to track when you're at the Mm. front and how i mean how is the labor market that you're out there in your state i mean i know i keep hearing that starting to ease up that some people are coming back to work and it's getting a little bit easier Um, hygienist notwithstanding that's a whole different conversation yeah i was gonna say we can't yeah we're we're all having a hard time finding hygienists Yeah. yeah yeah but i mean how because I can imagine like you, you get this right with the different fee schedules in the office and then the person who could handle it now has decided to go somewhere else. Now, the new person is completely unaware. I mean, this this whole changing of the guard has been just so detrimental in so many ways. How is it looking in California? Is, do you all have any anything in place? Does the CDA have anything in place to help the members with that? Specifically with billing, uh, we do have quite a bit of resources that, that Lisa manages that, to help with training and with that, we also have partnered with like a couple of third-party billing companies. You know, we've talked about with how difficult billing is that, you know, does it make sense for you to look at a third-party billing company while your biller is getting trained or have them help train your biller so that you don't take that hiccup there? Or, you know, maybe you keep, maybe you like the third-party biller and you keep that and then shift your focus to, you know, having your front office take on more of the receptionist role where they're focused on your staff in front of you and, and filling the schedule. So it, it is, you, you can't just pull a biller in off the street. Usually it's, it's, it's a lot of training and a lot of experience and, and the doctors that have those good ones are doing everything they can to keep those good ones. You know, you know, we focus on maybe like while that person's getting trained, use a third party biller and then hire someone that has great customer service experience that you can train to provide a great environment or great experience for your patients. We're starting to see a lot of, of front office team members that are being promoted to office managers at this point in time also, too. So it's like the natural progression of, yeah. of the office managers leaving and whoever's next in line is coming up. So we're starting to seeing started to see some of those those transitions as well. I wonder, though, if that's um, a lot too soon for some of the people that are in the office, you know, um, doing a really good job as a receptionist. And I, I'm speaking honestly because that's exactly what happened to me. I was a really yeah. good yeah. assistant went up front. I, no, I was a really bad assistant. I'm like, I was a bad assistant. Went up front to be a good receptionist. <laughs> I was an excellent receptionist. And then all of a sudden I started just doing more managing stuff. And I would say probably the first two years of being having the title manager, I was terrible. Although nobody knew I was terrible. I knew I was terrible. Yeah. Now looking back, I was really terrible. <laughs> because you don't know how much you're not doing, you know, how much you're not keeping up with. And now, you know, I wonder how we, we kept the doors open back then. Um, so, <laughs> but but it is a lot to ask. And I, I hear burnout all the time. Are you hearing burnout from dentists too, not just team members, but dentists too? How's that? Is that something you all 
have some resources in your uh, association for? Yeah, we've been doing a lot of like mental health webinars and courses for our members and uh, just trying to help support that and understanding that is that is a big part of the, the industry. I'm unconcerned. Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, going back to your leadership yeah. thing, it's just Lisa just did a course with a couple other colleagues in, in Anaheim just geared towards training office managers on the fundamentals of being a new office manager from HR standpoint and from a leadership standpoint and from a dental billing one. So I'm going to be stepping in and helping her with that course in San Jose. I'm pretty excited for that. But the thing, like most people that have been leaders too, they can tell you like, you know, it's not a light switch. Like you get promoted to office manager and it's not, it's not like, well, here it is. I know everything about leadership, you know? And I think back to like, even myself when I was a college graduate going into retail and like having all these employees and I started off too soft and then I got in trouble with my district manager for everybody steamrolling <laughs> me. And so I course corrected by going way too far. <laughs> And then everybody quit because I was too hard on them. And, you know, you have to find that like that medium of like, how do you be a supportive but effective leader? And it's really hard to do that in a dental practice because it is such a small team and it is such a skilled positions that you're hiring for. So you do. It is tough. You have to learn it a little bit faster, I think, than in most industries. Yeah. And I think a lot of times you you find out it's almost a an emergency based learning because you find you get a letter in the mail and you're like, Oh, I should know Definitely. that. Okay, let me go research that now. <laughs> so like you come in thinking you're going to do this thing and then, you know, the mail tells you differently. That seems to, that was, those were always my Mondays and Tuesdays. So, well, this class sounds really good. Lisa, the, the basically like a management 101. I mean, is there, what is it that, that they seem to respond to the most? Like what, what part of the class is there real excitement about? Well, I always say it's my portion with dental benefits, but I'm partial. But um, any any presentation that I that I do, I, I always tell Matt this, any presentation that I do that I can show an example or a sample of what it's going to look like on a claim form or what it's going to look like when an EOB comes back, they are whipping their phones out to take pictures of that. So it's like that mental, they can go back to it and be like, oh, I've seen, I've seen non-duplication of benefits clause before on that, on that EOB that Lisa showed a picture of. So to me, it's they're very visual learners. And so anything that I can put up there and, and show them. And I think the the shock when they they find out the percentage of, of self-funded policies in the state is more than half of their patients that they're seeing. I think that's the other the other big shock and surprise for them. It really kind of blows away all the Facebook answers because all the Facebook answers, you don't really mention that at all. It's just like, well, yeah. you can go to your state insurance commissioner and you know, I learned a long time ago from the state insurance commissioner that self-funded doesn't like they're like, oh, that's too bad. OK, well, sorry. Good yeah. luck. Like, that's yeah. pretty much how they are. Here's, here's the number to Department of Labor. Yeah. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, Department of what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, that's yeah. that's the government. I don't want to call it the government. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's really where it goes. So um, we talked during the pregame about how the carriers, you know, the carriers are the carriers. But we really need to start looking at the fact that it's the employers that are choosing this plan. How big of a light bulb moment is it? for your audiences when you explain that relationship? Because I'm sure newer office managers, that's not, I don't know if they've made that connection yet. I think the bigger light bulb is when I speak to the dentist as an employer. And I always say these employer groups are choosing these policies based off of 
of cost containment, just like you would do as an employer for your employees as well. So too. And so when I can kind of put it into terms for them that they understand it that way, they're don't, don't get me wrong. They're still upset, <laughs> but now they are kind of thinking about it from a different direction of like, okay, well, if as me as an employer, I'm going to look at trying to find the best benefits available for my employees at the lowest cost to me. And that's, that's self-funded. I mean, that's, that's purely how it they're they're containing their costs as employers. And so, yeah, it's it's a bigger light bulb moment, I think, for me with the dentists when we talk about it. I think when I when I speak to the front office team members, the light bulb moment for them is is when they realize, well, this it's just how it is. It's like this doesn't apply, you know, because a lot of them have, have learned the the state laws and they've heard this and they've heard that 365 day law and they can't take the funds back. And, and then when you have to tell them, well, actually, yeah, they can. So. And then, of course, there's they're terrified of being audited. That's the next question I get is, does this mean oh I'm going to get audited? And I'm going, oh, well, you know, if you did it once, I can't imagine. But how often are you doing it here? And so, yeah. I mean, yeah. so what is the, do you get this, the the deer in the headlight look when you mentioned the A word? Is that something that comes up in your classes? It's funny. Anytime an audit question comes up, I, I get giddy. I'm like, ooh. It's an audit question. And you think that I'm I have this sick personality. It has nothing to do with it. It's just I always try to like talk them off the ledge. Don't worry. Uh-huh. Like the majority of audits are not because you've done something wrong. They're required by the regulators. It's a checks and balance that's put in place for the consumer protection. And once they kind of understand that, then I'm like, let's talk about all the resources that we have available. There's there's a lot of information that's out there to kind of walk them through the the audit process. And then Worst case scenario, it's it's a learning experience for you. Let's say you get a recoupment request at the end of that audit. So like, let's change some of your your charting. Like your charting is terrible. Let's work on some of that. Let's uh-huh. you know. Or the other issue that I see come up quite a bit is that the the request for the chart audits will come into the office. You know, the front office will show the doctor, and the doctor hands it back to the front office and says, "We'll just take care of it for them." Well, a lot of your front office team members aren't necessarily trained to read and look at X rays, so we see a lot of times that they're sending in the wrong x-rays in for the the wrong treatment. So it's, yeah, or they're sending in non-diagnostic quality x-rays with cone cuts in there. Um, so that's, that's the other thing is that make sure you have the time to respond to the audit. Make sure you have someone that has some, some really good knowledge and work with them together to get it all together and put it in the first time. And then you have the right to appeal. So once they send back that, that initial, you know, naughty letter, you have the right to appeal it and, and send them some more proof, send them some more information. Oh, the cone cuts. You just triggered me. Yeah. yeah. So I think Lisa. I just trigger you. Yeah. I think, I think Lisa, you and Matt, you are my people. Uh, you really are. No, because the cone cut thing is just driving me crazy because you're right. The diagnostic quality has to be there. And for uh-huh, an office uh-huh. to say, well, I don't have a better x-ray then, th- but that's not the insurance carrier's fault. No. Yeah. That's the chance you're taking. I just don't understand because the, and I shouldn't say that so much, but I wish I could understand. How do we do this better? Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could understand yeah. why a doctor would be okay looking at a bad quality x-ray and knowing that that could be used not just for carriers because the insurance is the least of my concern. That could be used in a malpractice case. That could be yeah. used in a state board review. If you're only thinking, well, insurance will be able to see what they need to see on this x-ray, like that's not... That's not what I'm yes. worried about. Yeah. I think that's the the default is, well, it's enough. They can see it. That's like your license depends on these x-rays. It, it truly does. 
Yeah. It's a hard thing to say. I try to explain to them, would you want to diagnose some fine decay off of a, a decay off of a pano? No, you wouldn't. Like you want you want some really good x-rays. Well, the insurance companies kind of look at them the same way. Yeah. And I think too, with this, the AI, the software that can take a look at your x-rays. I mean, if you take a, a dog yeah. and an x-ray, hopefully, you know, I was joking with the, the people over at Pearl. I was joking with them. I was like, can I be the voice that comes out of your computer that says, are you kidding me with this x-ray? <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be like little bells that go on. Yeah. <laughs> Do better. Try again. <laughs> right. yeah. You went to school for yeah. that. I'd love to have that kind yeah. of stuff come out. <laughs> yeah. But I think that goes back to the leadership part of it also too is as the dentist they're not necessarily wanting to send an assistant back in to retake that x-ray retake that x-ray retake that x-ray there's got to be some leadership involved there and, and explain to them this is the reason why i need this x-ray retaken this is you know put the why behind it for them so if they get the letter about an audit your first advice is to take a deep breath yes okay and, and then call me and call you and then call me <laughs> or, yeah. or if you're not in california call your state dental association yeah. and, and see if you can get some guidance you all have resources for people that can help, right? Right, Matt? Yeah. And, and even most of the plans have really everything detailed out on what they're looking for on the audit. It's really like ask them for a copy or look at their website. You'll you'll get the answers there. And something I wanted to circle back to because something that uh, Lisa had taught me that's really cool when we're talking about federal funded plans a little bit ago um, and you're getting denials and stuff. I think like the big aha moment for me coming into understanding ERISA was you can go back and ask your HR to cover something for you. And sometimes they will. Yeah. It's like you can have the plan, have the, the patient go back and talk to their HR. And I, I was shocked at how many times I saw that actually work too. Especially if they are higher up in the company, all of a sudden like like payments are flowing. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. In our office, we had an executive at US Air. What was US Air? And uh, her claims got denied and she's like, I'll take care of this. And Oh, okay. And then sure enough, like next yeah. week, they, here's my chat. <laughs> it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty amazing to see in action. You know, we talked all about being in, con in network, looking at the contracts. Um, what are some things to look out for if you're looking to transition out of a network? What, what clauses in these contracts that were signed might come back to bite you if you're trying to terminate a contract? What do you see the most? Yeah, I think understanding like assignment of benefits, one. And so, who, um, you know, who is the check going to go to once you get out of network? And, you know, if it's going to come to you, great. If it's going to go to the patient, then you really need to make sure that you have a strong financial policy in place to, to, to help not tank your collections when that happens. You know, I think that's a big one. I think, yeah, Lisa, you had one too, right? Yeah, I think with portability, that's a, a large one. We kind of touched yeah. on that a little bit earlier, but also having a really good understanding of lease networks and how they intertwine together when you're going out of network with one plan. I spoke with several members not not too long ago that were in direct contract with a plan that they were terminating that direct contract with a plan in hopes to get picked up with a lease network at a higher fee schedule. Uh -huh. Well, once it got to that position, the plan that they were in direct contract with, you know, just like a, a dentist can opt out of being leased in a network, the plans can opt out of picking you up as well also too. So they that kind of backfired on them when they went to the to try to be picked up through the lease network and the plan that they were in direct contract with was like, no, thanks. We already have enough providers in this area serving our patients. Wow. So their their plan really backfired on them that way. So so knowing how lease networks work and how they intertwine is extremely important when you're going out of network with, with plans. The unfortunate thing about lease networks and learning how lease networks work is that you know, you guys could teach a course on this today and uh -huh. next six months it'll be different. And and that honestly feels very, it's not, it, we're, we're in a David and Goliath situation, you know, and 
my listeners know I work both with the carriers and with the associations. And so I see both sides. But in this situation, we are definitely David. Yeah. It's unfair to us to try to keep up with 20 something different plans. It's just an yeah. impossibility. Yeah. Is that the common sentiment you're hearing as well? It is. And and Matt and I have both spoken with members before. Matt has a Matt has a great story when he was doing um when he was doing consulting about how he he thought he was doing a member of a service. Matt, go ahead and tell your this is a great story. <laughs> well, well, I mean, lucky for me, it was one of my really good friends. So this is when I had first left um, Dennis, uh, well, running an office and then got into consulting and you learn quickly when you're in consulting, you just have to like figure it out. M my friend started a practice and wanted to be contracted with every plan. So then I called one plan and they're like, oh, we only sign up through this leaser. So then like, I was like, okay. So I called the leaser and they're like, oh, do you want us to sign you up with all the plans? And I was like, that's going to save me so much oh, time. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so so I did and it worked and it got it happened really fast but then you know once I figured out what that meant you know I had to go back through and and, and get individually contracted with everyone and then end the leaser contract and yeah it was a really good learning experience I'm glad that happened before you know before I worked here because I've helped guide a lot of people on on how to how to do that now, Matt. You realize you just you just elicited a response of "oh no" from pretty much every podcast listener. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> when I first started at CDA, I spoke with a dentist that was opening her own practice, and she was coming from a DSO and opening her own private practice, and so she had never dealt with the contracting or the billing or or any of that, and so she thought that she had found this company that was going to contract her with all of these plans. And, and she had a little bit of concerns about it. And I was like, well, send me the list of plans that they're going to contract you with. And so she sent me the list and it was about 10, seven to 10 plans that she was going to contract with, direct contract with. Well, then when I started pulling up the affiliations for her and I was like, you're going to be contracted with about 37 different plans. Mm -hmm. Do you have someone that's going to be doing your billing for you that's been doing billing for quite a while? So you mentioned back that it's you have to have that experience, you know, to be able to, to negotiate and navigate those multiple plans. And she was like, no, I haven't even hired anybody yet. And I was like, <laughs> oh, we might want to put a pause on some of those. Contracts. Yeah. So, in, yeah. In Virginia, yeah. we go, oh, bless your heart. Let's help you out here. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the National Association of Dental Plans, their statistic is that uh, most dentists, if they're in network, they're in network with an average of 28.3 plans. So you can imagine that that's, I mean, and that's exactly, yeah. your, your example is exactly how it happens. They don't realize it. And a lot of times, until they hear from the patient, they don't realize that they're in network, right? And yeah. I, I don't know if you have ever been in that situation as office managers where you're arguing with a patient that you're not in network and the patient's like, I swear it's right here. Yeah. <laughs> not a great confidence builder for the day, right? Lease networks, they're, they're not all bad. They're, they're definitely have their purpose and it's a way for the, the plans to, you know, expand their networks into areas without having to, you know, throw a, throw a ton of dollars in there and, and, you know, it's easy. It's cheaper to lease a network than it is to grow a network organically. So mm -hmm. there, there's definitely some benefits to the lease networks for sure. Yeah, we're actually starting to hear that that's where more than negotiating for increases is coming from is from there than rather than with individual plans. I mean, it's easier for an individual plan to cut the cost in that department. Right. So they'll let the, the lease network handle it. I mean, it's smart. Yeah. I, it used to be direct contracts. The fees for direct contracts were always what would take precedence. And now that's not necessarily the case. And 
That was an interesting shift to watch happen. I, well, I mean, we've been in, all of us yeah. have been in this a while. It's been interesting to see a lot of shifts happen. Yeah. So if I'm going out of network then, um, if I've read my contract, I'm looking at probably a, a set termination period. I need to look for that. Yeah. I need to, we talked about already, don't disparage <laughs> the carrier. Yeah. Sending notification, is that usually something that you see in a clause that you must notify your patients or impending patients with appointments? Is that something you see? They can't leave any patient in the lurch. They're, they can't be any abandonment issues. That's definitely in, in all of the contracts. And as far as notifying the patients ahead of time, it's not necessarily in the contract. There are some contracts that that's written into it, but we don't see that on every contract. Okay. It's more to avoid the patient being very upset that you didn't tell them ahead of time and avoid those confrontations at the front desk. What I have I have started recommending is not, well, I don't like the letter. I, I don't like sending the letter, giving about six months, 10 months leeway where you're talking to the patient and letting them know that yeah. this is a decision you're trying to make. And then the letter goes out to those you haven't been able to reach. But I think once you send the letter, it opens up a lot of, um, it, I think it makes the patient go shopping if you haven't prepared them for it. Absolutely. Yeah. It does. And it's, you know. Having been a patient that received one of those letters at one point in time, you know, your thought process when you open that letter isn't, oh, gosh, I need to call my doctor and find out what this means. It's, oh, I need to call my plan and find out what this means, you know, and, that, and that's what they do. Um, and I, I agree, you know, when we were when I was in consulting, that's what we specialized in was was helping with an out of network process. And and you're exactly right that six to 10 months of the doctor or the hygienist having that conversation with the patient we saw dramatically increases the retention rate of those patients. For sure. For sure. I, I remember when doctor was saying, I just dropped all these plans. And he's like, uh, so now what do I do? And I, I said, oh, okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's break out the Band-Aids and the Neosporin because this is going to hurt. Like, <laughs> How many dollars do you have allocated for marketing? Right. And, and I think that, is, and you guys have a marketing department, which is helpful, right? Because I don't think we market like we used to. I, I think that's something that as an industry, we need to do a lot more of. We just kind of hope people find us or we think social media is going to save us. We don't ask for referrals. We don't thank patients a lot. I think it's time to go back to basics, but that could be a whole different podcast, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but but Matt's nodding his head like, yes. yeah. Yeah, you're 100% yeah. right. I, yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny too, because People think marketing and it's like one of the first costs that's cut, you know, when, when things get tough, which I understand, but you're right. There's so much internal marketing. Thank you. Thank you for coming here. We're looking for patients just like you. We appreciate it. Well, we're taking referrals. It, it That just goes such a long way. And I think it is really underutilized. Yeah, it'd be, it would be so nice to see a return to that, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that, that is definitely another conversations. <laughs> the hour flew. I knew it was going to. So Lisa and Matt, how do they find you? Lisa, how do they get in touch with you about dental benefits if they're a California dentist? How do they get in touch with you? They can absolutely call our, our membership number. Uh, that's 1-800-232-7645. Um, I believe mine and Matt's direct contact information is on our website as well. So too, that's at cda.org. They can reach out to us through through that route as well. I prefer email only because I can multitask. Okay. <laughs> Matt, same for you. Email? Yep. So okay. Yep. And and I know that this um, you guys provide uh, great services for the the California dentists. What is on the website that could be helpful to non California dentists and um, on the ADA side in particular? I think the ADA. I mean, ADA has a ton of resources too. Um, what is it that they could could glean from the CDA site that's for that's public facing? 
I know that you have your newsroom and a couple articles and stuff. Yeah, I'm always sending people there. Yeah, we do have quite a few resources that are available for non-members as well. So too, the majority of it, of course, is going to be California specific as you know, we are the, the California Dental Association. But there's a there's a lot of information. We have a, a new um, that is open to to non-members, the Dental Plan Action Center. So they can they can go through there and, and take a look at that. But um, all of our COVID resources are still open if we're still talking about COVID. But oh my gosh. <laughs> all of our COVID resources yeah. are still available. Uh, I'm so ready to ban that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt. What were you saying? No. Yeah. ADA has really good resources on like when you're looking for your UCR, like when you're looking at your fees and like, are you in line? They have really good HIPAA resources. Um, and we're starting to see from, you know, OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, like some really big fines on not following HIPAA guidelines and patient records. So definitely recommend taking advantage of ADA's uh, HIPAA and making sure you're you're in compliance there. Yeah, it's a good life rule, right? Don't get audited. Don't get fined. Like that's a pretty good yeah. life rule. So, Well, Lisa and Matt, thank you so much for being on, on the podcast. You are welcome back anytime. I love geeking out with you guys. This has been great. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. So dear listeners, I hope this has been helpful for you and as always you know i appreciate that you spend your time with me we're all super busy so thank you for making time for me today the show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode you can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule i speak often around the country on management and insurance issues come hang out with me in one of my classes i promise you'll laugh and learn